This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Oklahoma 3rd District Representative Frank Lucas. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Congressman Frank Lucas next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net, providing individualized protection on more than 490 million acres of farmland. Crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Oklahoma 3rd District Representative Frank Lucas is back on the Agriculture Committee, bringing the experience of a former chairman to a group that will craft a new farm bill. Lucas has much respect for the leaders of both chambers. GT will be a great chairman. He represents a very diverse agricultural district in Pennsylvania. Yes, they're corn, and yes, they're beans, but they're dairy. I mean, they're just a little bit of everything in that good farmland up there. Uh, he was one of my subcommittee chairmen when I did the 14 Farm Bill. And in the 18 Farm Bill, he was the point man for then-Chairman Conaway on the nutrition title. He was literally Mike's right-hand man. So GT has the maximum amount of experience. I think he's a great person, and his district is a good reflection of America. So I'm very enthusiastic about that. I won't deny to you that I will miss Colin Peterson, who was defeated a couple turns ago. Colin was a great ally. Even though he was a Democrat from Minnesota, we worked together on the 14 Farm Bill, and he worked with us on the 18 Farm Bill. Uh, David Scott's a little bit of a different guy. He is from the Atlanta area in Georgia. He just has a slightly different perspective, but we will work through that. The Ag Committee has historically and will continue to be not a group where we argue by party label, but we have differences of opinion by region, differences of opinion by commodity groups, differences of opinion philosophically about allocating money. But we've always come together because as a committee as a whole, we know we have to have a safety net both for the production of and, yes, the consumption of agricultural products, food and fiber, as I like to say. This will be a unique in some ways to many of the members I serve with, Jeff, because you'll have a divided Congress, a Republican majority of five seats, a Democrat majority in the United States Senate of one seat. Uh, you'll have a president running for election down at the other end, uh, Joe Biden, uh, a Democrat. That's dramatically different than 18 when Republicans controlled the whole process. It went relatively quick and we accomplished our work. This is more reminiscent of 2012, 13, 14 when I had the challenges of a Democrat Senate and ironically Chairwoman Stabenow of Michigan who was chair of the Senate Ag Committee in 14, will be chair again. Joe Biden was vice president. He'll be president. And uh, Tom Vilsack, who was secretary of Ag in the 14 Farm Bill process, is secretary of Ag again. But it means in divided government, it's not just what happens in the Ag Committee. How do we get the bill across the floor? Can we persuade the Senate to do their work? Will we get the president to sign a conference report? You've heard me say how many times, Jeff? I'm a wheat farmer from Oklahoma. The glass is always half full. I put the seed in the ground expecting a crop. We're going to get a bill. We're just going to have to work really hard at it. Are we going to get a bill in 23? 
my fingers are crossed, my toes are crossed. I'm working with Chairman Thompson in that direction. He believes we can do it, but our listeners know if you follow farm policy for very long, sometimes these things require short-term extensions, and sometimes in my history, we've had a one-year extension. If I can't have a good bill that addresses the changes since 18, that provides an enhanced safety net for producers, then I'm better off, I think, and we are in rural America with one-year extension. But let's try to do the good bill that reflects all the changes that have happened in the world. And there have been a lot since 2018 before we have to go to the, the fallback plan. Let's look to the upper chamber and the two leads there. Chairwoman Stabenow has suggested that before they start writing, she wants to review all of the titles of the current farm bill. She's had some successes in the 117th. You've worked with Senator Stabenow before. What would you expect of her now, especially as this may be her last hurrah uh, in terms of policy uh, statement from Washington? Chairwoman Stabenow is a very principled, very determined negotiator. She's very focused on the agriculture in the state of Michigan, as any member should reflect their home state. She's also extremely focused on the social nutrition programs, and she cares about the environmental issues. This is where having a Republican House makes so much difference. If we had had a Democrat House, a Democrat Senate, and Joe Biden's president, you would get a bill that would be so focused on the liberal definition of environmental justice You've gotten a bill that was so focused on who should farm and who shouldn't farm that literally we would have wound up with a document that if you didn't farm a certain way and if you weren't a certain person, you couldn't access the safety net. Thank goodness that's not going to be the case. But we're still going to have to sort through these issues. I found Chairwoman Stabenow to be very knowledgeable, very tough negotiator, but ultimately in 14, when we had to have our work done after rolling over for a couple of cycles, she stepped up. And by the way, don't underestimate the importance of the Secretary of Agriculture. Tom Vilsack was, as the chemist would call it, a catalyst in 2014. He helped pull the Democratic majority in the Senate, and yes, working with me in the House, Republican majority at the time, together to get to that final product. I have great expectations that he will help us again get to the finished product. And by the way, just as Barack Obama enthusiastically signed the 2014 Farm Bill, and I would uh, note George Bush signed the 2002 Farm Bill, I have found presidents who think they're run for re-election will usually be very helpful on reauthorizing Farm Bills. It's only sometimes in their second term when they get a little confused and uh, listen to too many non-farm advisors we have challenges with White House. The the last farm bill, it was Senator Stabenow and Senator Pat Roberts. Well, the relationship now as we look to the 23 is Ms. Stabenow and also Senator Bozeman from Arkansas, who uh, in, in all uh, measures that I can see stands for all of agriculture and appears willing to work together in a bipartisan fashion to get a bill. How's that chemistry, do you believe? I worked with uh, John when he was a House member before he went to the Senate. He provides an incredible balance. If you have a Michigan senator up on the north border, so to speak, and you match that up with an Arkansas United States senator who is southern agriculture, southwestern agriculture, uh, in many ways a lot of things common with with the southern Midwest, it's a great balancing act. And John, Senator Bozeman, I should say, is not a caustic personality. He is one of those individuals that 
if you spend five minutes with him or five months, you'll only grow to like him more. He's the perfect, perfect individual to lead the minority in the Senate. It is a 51-49 split now, thanks to the last election. So technically, the Democrats are a majority. Uh, but thank goodness we have Bozeman there, because this will give us, along with my perspective, will give us, I think, uh, a better shot at a more balanced agricultural approach. Jeff, you remember me pointing out numerous times in the 2014 Farm Bill, safety net was critically important, but all commodity groups and all regions had to be a part of the safety net. We couldn't just pick, choose, pick uh, winners and losers. We couldn't just base our decisions on who raised the most or what was the most valuable. The safety net had to apply to everyone. We accomplished that. That was maintained in the 2018 Farm Bill. And I believe it'll be still a fundamental principle of the leaderships of both committees in the 23 Farm Bill. Farm journalists had a great session with Ag Secretary Vilsack when he was in Puerto Rico with the American Farm Bureau. And I appreciated one statement that he made, and I thought this would be an opportunity perhaps for you to key on. He said the secret in writing the 23 was to identify the problem and address the problem. How do you feel about that perspective of writing policy for the state that agriculture is in right now? I think that's very logical. That's very reasonable. And if you look at the landscape across all commodity groups, producers are facing challenges. Input prices have dramatically ratcheted up. A big part of that is the the war in Eastern Europe that the Russians have brought on. Mr. Putin, I should say, has brought on. The effect on fertilizer prices, the effect on diesel prices. By the same token, I don't like to use the C word, but the disruption in the processing and transportation industry that the COVID experience caused out there we now know where our, our weaknesses are in the chain that starts on the farm and goes all the way to the consumer's dinner table. We need to address that, the weaknesses. We also have to, once again, uh, make sure that safety net is such that when a farmer or a rancher, when he or she goes to see the banker, they can explain how will the price of fertilizer, how will the price of diesel, and what seed is going to cost for the foreseeable future how they could still uh, survive. The Secretary is correct, and I would hope that both the House and the Senate actually follow that. And if so, then we'll make the adjustments in the 18 Farm Bill that are necessary so we can continue to not just survive, but try to thrive again as the world goes back to hopefully, whatever the new normal is, Jeff. So as we're still waiting officially for the Ag Committee to be completely named, uh, Chairman Thompson did have uh, a hearing. Eight members of the committee joined him in Pennsylvania. And in a summary, following that two-hour meeting, he identified crop insurance, cost inflation, nutrition assistance, rural broadband, and ag research as areas of uh, of heightened attention for this bill it won't get as much attention as will title one but let's talk about ag research um congressman i saw a story recently that china is spending much more money in public research in agriculture than that of the u.s the european union spending a tremendous amount of money more in public agriculture research It's been a while since the ag research title has seen much of an increase. What are your thoughts? First off, Chairman Thompson's spot on on his priorities. Exactly right. 
And the issue of ag research is critical, as you know, in addition to being a member of the Ag Committee and the Financial Services Committee. I'll be chairman of the Science, Space, and Technology Committee in this coming session. And we have jurisdiction over most of the rest of the research programs in the United States. We, we have benefited from in ag research. We have benefited from the efforts, not just since the 1930s, but literally from the creation of a land-grant university system uh, in, in 1862. We have lost our focus, and there are many people out there who believe that private enterprise should do all the research. But I would suggest there's a public-private partnership component here. First off, the brilliant agronomists, the brilliant genetic engineers, the brilliant people who do the core ag research, just to name a few of the disciplines that fall within that, those people are trained in our public and private universities. We have to maintain that land-grant research stream if we're going to produce the scientists that industry needs in the private sector to move forward. Key point number one. Key point number two, a lot of the research that's done at the level we're funding on the federal government is not necessarily what you would apply, uh, describe as applied research, the kind of things that produce a new seed immediately or a new this or a new that. It's the kind of fundamental research that creates the new ideas, the new concepts that then lead to the new products. So part of my goal, working with the Chairman Thompson and my colleagues, is to try to address what I believe we all would agree to look closely at this, the efficiency in our prioritizing. But that takes us, Jeff, to the real bottom line issue of the whole situation. How many dollars will we have to craft the next new comprehensive farm bill? And if we don't have enough money, because this is going to be a very tight-fisted Republican House for the coming year, how do we potentially reallocate these sources within the farm bill to address certain deficiencies like research. I don't know the answers to those questions yet. I just know that we're going to have to work diligently and hard. Uh, The chairman's given me the impression that we will spend the first half of this year doing our fundamental committee hearings, looking at the things that are working or not working, similar in some ways to what the chairwoman Stabenow has advocated. But then from that point, we'll go forth to put a bill together in committee, work our way through the markup process. If the Senate can match us, in their efforts, then uh, hopefully have something we could take across the floor and have a conference report by October 1. Now, that's a very idealistic and ambitious agenda. The chairman believes we can do it. I believe in the chairman, and we're going to try. But, oh, my, there's going to be a lot of twists and turns on the way to get to that final product. Delegates at the American Farm Bureau Convention for one of the first times that I can recall, suggested we're going to have to increase the baseline. And as you look at reference prices now, as you look at input costs for producers, yes, there is a safety net, but, Congressman, in, in, in a number of commodities, that net is below the cost of production. Um, and that led Mr. Thompson to suggest even this summer, uh, should we be looking at some sort of a margin protection? Should we be looking at some sort of a sea change in programs to try to make the most of the dollars that are available? Clearly, uh, things have changed financially from when the 18 bill was written. This is the kind of thing that will play out in the legislative process. I don't know the answer yet, but the reference price issue is something that is especially in the last year, been brought up almost constantly to me by producers. 
it's a legit issue of just how much money we're going to have, how much can we reallocate if we don't get enough money, what will the Senate do, and if the Senate should come in with different numbers in the House, which I think is almost a certainty, once we get to the conference committee, then we've got to balance that out. I'm now serving, again, as I mentioned earlier, with a very physically conservative bunch of people in the United States House and the Republican majority. But we're only a five-seat majority out of 435. The bill that leaves the House floor may not quite look like exactly the bill that comes back from the conference committee. Again, it's going to be a wild roller coaster ride that we can get there. Do you expect the bailiwig over nutrition that we saw in the last farm bill? If the outside groups, as they did in previous farm bills, choose to agitate on the issue, then it'll be complicated. But this is something we should always bear in mind, those of us who care about what happens on the farm. Since the 1960s, the key to passing a farm bill has been the relationship between production and consumption. And those who have long memories, remember when I was chairman of the Conservation Subcommittee in 2002, We made a big push, not only with EQIP and a variety of programs to protect the soil, the water, the air, but we made it clear to the sportsmen and the environmental community that those conservation programs were an enhancement to hunting and fishing and wildlife and all the sporting things, and we put that third leg under the stool. When people come and say, well, let's just peel off the commodity title, or let's run the nutrition title, or who cares about this stuff, let's just do the, the conservation title. You have to look really closely. Is it because they sincerely care about that portion of the farm bill? Or as is the case with some of the think tanks on the East Coast, is it really a plot to kill the whole process by peeling off the different planks and generating enough opposition and hostility to bring them down, and thereby upending the whole situation? I told you before, Jeff, that once upon a time, while traveling with a speaker at the time, we were in a European country, and the head of state and the speaker were discussing agricultural policy, and the guy looked the speaker in the eye and said, you know, buy your food anywhere, he said. But farmers, they are important. They maintain the landscape. I was never so horrified in my life by an obviously well-educated individual who was a responsible senior member of a European government, actually say that. But that's the kind of challenge we face, even here in the United States. So Ms. Yellen has informed Congress that we're out of money, and there will be uh, efforts made uh, to keep our bills paid until Congress takes action on the debt ceiling. I recall a time when a debate over a debt ceiling cost the farm bill $23 billion. Do you anticipate this debt ceiling issue to have an impact on farm policy? Anything that involves money this time will have an effect on the farm bill process. Two things we have to do this year. I would define the farm bill as right there as number three, but two things in the eyes of most people. One is to pass the 12 appropriation bills and reconcile those with the Senate that fund the federal government the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture. Uh, Even though the Farm Bill sets aside mandatory money for the implementation of the commodity title, for instance, the annual appropriation actually funds research. The annual appropriation funds the delivery of the program 
the employee salaries, pays the rent on the FSA and NRCS offices, that sort of stuff. So doing the appropriation process to fund government keeps the doors open. And many of those functions are critical to the survival of the nation. The next most critical juncture in this process will come before the appropriations process is finished. And you're exactly right. That's the debt ceiling. There's a statutory law that gives a maximum number on how much money the federal government can borrow to fund its operations. You need years of surplus, and I went through those uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. It doesn't matter because you're not taking on new debt. But for most of the recent history of the country, this has been an important issue. And Secretary of the Treasury basically announced this week that we've hit the debt ceiling. She has what they refer to as extraordinary powers. She can manipulate money. She can move bonds around. She can do some things to keep covering the government's, the federal government's financial obligations into late summer or early fall. Uh, and sometimes secretaries, and that's both Republican and Democrat, will massage that deadline for their own purposes. But I personally think we're probably looking at a point where in September something has to happen. Something has to happen. My conservative colleagues would like to dramatically reduce federal spending overall, preferably, but anywhere they can. They are willing to leverage the government's ability to pay its bills on a day-to-day basis to get these policy changes. It's, 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 it is a difficult way to fundamentally change policies because, remember, we've got a five-seat majority of Republicans in the House. We don't control the Senate. We don't ex- control the executive branch. It's some ways like trying to steer a battleship with uh, using a scoop shovel behind it to turn the water. But we're going to go through that struggle. I don't believe the federal government will default. I would hope there are some reforms that can be made in spending, but... A number of my friends have adopted this as a do-or-die cause, and you don't want to go into default. Do you have insight in what Speaker McCarthy had to compromise in order to gain the lead of the House that might affect the way policy is debated on the House floor or fiscal uh, restraints? The main thing the Speaker did over the course of 15 ballots was he wore down folks who were trying to use this to dramatically change the body. There are some things that will have a real impact. Um, my understanding is three of the, the zealots will be on the Rules Committee, and that's the committee that sees every piece of legislation one final time before it goes to the floor that passes procedural rules on, on amendments and debate and all that sort of stuff. So that's a real impact. Uh, the members that he put on approach that came from that group for example, are relatively small compared to the overall committee. I don't see a dramatic amount of change there. Uh, government oversight for a number of them are the, the Grand Inquisitor Committee that by, by its nature for however many decades have pursued aggressively whoever the president is. They were already the dominant force there, so I don't see a dramatic change in that regard. If anything, we had to have Republican speaker with the majority, and I think over time... My colleagues realized that they had pushed their point as far as they could and were on the verge of causing real damage. 
Congressman Lucas, we want to thank you very much for taking time and a busy schedule to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. Glad to have you back on the Agriculture Committee. You know being on Open Mic today, sir, the uh, the Sooner has the last word. I'll simply say it's wonderful to be home in a committee chamber room on a committee where I've spent so much of my legislative career. I had the good privilege of a great chairman and the former G.T. Thompson. I'm very happy that one of my old House colleagues is the ranking member of the Senate Ag Committee, Senator Bozeman from Arkansas. And uh, the relationships and the understandings that uh, Senator Stabenow and I developed with each other some years ago. We'll get to revisit all those. I'd like to say we're going to have fun, but the fact of the matter is we're going to work really hard. And if we work hard enough, then we'll get a 23 farm bill, and it will be a 23 farm bill that will provide a safety net that will help our producers get through what can only be described as a crazy world we live in right now. Our thanks to Oklahoma 3rd District Representative Frank Lucas, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest and most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.